right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Uh, another great panel. I'm, I'm not getting tired of these great panels. Are you, Dr. Rick? Because I'm telling you these. these no, are I, think, I think the panel's been amazing. I mean, they've been fun. All right. We have uh, Christian. Uh, say the last name again, Christian. Isley. Thank you. Like the Isley brothers, right? Exactly. Just All right. I, should have, I, should have, I just should have done that in the in the original <laughs> one. And then we got Nancy Burns. And of course, we got Dr. Rick. Uh, for the listeners out there, Christian, give us a little uh, background, a little 411 on who you are, why you're such a, an incredible professional. Yeah, I, um, uh, I, I was a professional soccer player for eight years um, all over the world. I spent a couple couple years in Europe. And then a couple of years here in the States playing. Uh, I recently retired back in 2019, 2020. And then after that, I became a coach, a uh, soccer coach, obvious uh, uh, track after playing. And then um, I've been coaching ever since. So um, I have my own company, which I do supplemental training. And then I also coach uh, within the Orlando community where I'm from. Uh, my team, my, my European soccer team are the Bristol Rovers. Did you know that? Wow. That's a, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that's the typical response that I get from the Bristol Rovers, <laughs> but they are my team. And because eventually you just, you sort of, I was brought to that on that there. And then I watched a, a, a match and I said, they're my team. That's it. There you go. All right. Nancy, give us a little background. Hi, my name is Nancy Burns and I am the regional sports medicine coordinator for Cora physical therapy over in Tampa. Um, I am also on the concussion committee that actually teaches the uh, concussion certification um, for all of Cora. Uh, and our region is known for hosting its soccer tournaments, its youth soccer tournaments. So um, at least for us uh, and where I am in the state, that is kind of our specialty. All right. Uh, before we progress, uh, remember to go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. If you have any questions, comments, or, or whatever you want, it's out there on uh, corephysicaltherapy.com. All right, Dr. Rick, all up to you. Don't bring it down, baby. I'm going to do my best tonight. Uh, give it my A effort. <laughs> my name is Dr. Rick Lehman. Uh, we're in the 314 St. Louis area, and uh, I'm the medical director at the U.S. Center for Sports Medicine. And we obviously, oh, it's a sports practice. We see a lot of soccer, a lot of pro athletes, and actually have a contract uh, with some of the teams in Europe, mostly in Great Britain. So tonight we're going to talk about specifically head injuries. And it's kind of a hot topic in sports medicine right now. Concussions are a hot topic, but clearly soccer injury-related head injuries, hitting the ball, female soccer players, et cetera, has really hit the media hard. And, and we're going to try to break it down a little bit tonight. So be, before we get started, um, I think first things first, let's talk about how common head injuries are in players, Nancy. Kind of give me the demographics and how common it is and how common it is related to other sports, i.e. lacrosse, football, hockey, et cetera. Uh, sure. So just by merit 
of soccer being a contact sport, it automatically puts it in those higher risk categories. Um, any contact sport is considered high risk, especially in the world of sports medicine. So we are talking your footballs, your lacrosse, um, basketball, and then of course, soccer, anytime you've got that body to body contact. So um, what we what we're seeing, um, at least since, um, you know, the the 90s and certainly into um, like the mid 2000s now is we are seeing an increase in reported concussions, but whether or not that those reports are coming from um, just better education about symptoms um, or um, actually from improved diagnostic and treatment procedures, you know, the, the jury, so to speak, is still, is still out on that. Super. So Kristen, let's, let's talk about your career just for a minute. Uh, you played eight years professional soccer. Obviously, you didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm a professional soccer player. You obviously played substantially prior to that. Uh, have you ever had a concussion? And, and if you've had, tell us about it. And if you haven't, tell us about teammates who might have had a concussion. Yeah, absolutely. I've had um, at least three or four concussions um, that I know about. Um, the difficulty with um, concussions, which I'm sure we'll talk about later is, um, you don't always need to get knocked out to, to have a concussion. So, um, there's been a couple of times where I've had big blows to the head. Um, do they qualify as concussions or not? Um, that's kind of unsure, but I do remember I had one significant concussion when I was playing soccer in Sweden. Um, you know, I got two elbows to the head, um, kind of in the same practice. Uh, and then I wasn't knocked out. Um, you know, didn't really have any memory loss, just had some, some mild symptoms, um, thought it would go away. And it ended up lasting me about two months. Um, I was getting sick. Um, I, I couldn't uh, train hard without getting dizzy. Um, so my experience with concussions is kind of a interesting one because, uh, I was never knocked out with a concussion. Um, but I've had a, a number of elbows to the head that have really affected me. And, and, and when you had the concussions, Kind of what was the mode of treatment? Did they just say hang in there? Or did you continue to try to practice? Or did you have any kind of workup, uh, any neuropsych testing? Kind of tell us what happened after the kind – of, kind of walk us through what happened when you had the concussion and what happened after the concussion. So the main one I was, I was speaking of, um, I was playing professionally. So I don't believe I had any before that when I was in, in the youth system. But um, when I was playing professionally in Sweden um, – uh, our doctors did a good job, but they gave me a full MRI. Um, you know, they, they looked at my brain and uh, once they figured out that was the diagnosis, um, we, we went through the proper protocols um, to, to get me back on the field, uh, which took time, which was frustrating. But, um, you know, it, it all in all, I think, helped with the safety of me being back on the field. And, and when was your concussion after the first or uh, head trauma after the first? Um, so the first one was in 2015, I believe. Um, and then uh, the most recent one uh, was in 2019. I actually fractured uh, a bone in my, in my, like right next to my eye. Um, and I had to get surgery to fix it. Um, and, and that was a concussion where I, I didn't get knocked out, but uh, you heard the, the ringing in the ears and the, and the headaches and stuff like that. And there was a clear, um, issue. So, uh, it, it wasn't soon after that because I, I think that I 
recovered well enough to get back on the field and, and went through those proper protocols. And, and so you had the surgery and how long do you think it took you to get over? Sounds like you had an orbit floor, the orbit fracture. How, how long did it take you to get over that whole ordeal? Um, so surgery was pretty much the next day um, just because of, of how quickly we worked with those doctors. Um, surgery was the next day. And then I was uh, a week and a half or two weeks um, before I could do any sort of uh, activity. Um, and then obviously to protect my face, I was wearing a, fa a face mask um, for the next six weeks. So I was able to play after probably two, but um, it took me a while before I could actually play competitively again. And did you, do you have any residual from your concussions? Uh, memory loss, brain fog, dizziness, nausea, anything that's lingered or are you pretty much back at a hundred? Um, I would say I'm pretty much back at a hundred. Um, there, there's some times where um, I wonder if some of my symptoms of memory loss or headaches or whatever is um, contributing, contributed by the concussions I've had in the past, but um, you know, I don't really know how we can um, identify that very clearly. That's awesome. So Nancy kind of discussed a little bit the, the common mechanisms. We talked a little bit about uh, direct trauma, elbows to the head, which were never good, uh, yeah. orbit fractures, which were less good. Um, but, but give us kind of your, your take on what, what are the common mechanisms in terms of concussions, head injuries, minimal brain trauma as it relates to, to soccer. Sure. So in the world of soccer, um, specific to concussion mechanisms of injury, there really are four overarching types. Um, the first is going to be like player versus player. Um, so where you have uh, two contesting athletes that go up for the same ball. Um, but instead of a, a head hitting the ball, you actually get like player forehead to forehead or some type of contact there, body jarring. You do have ball to head co uh, contact where, again, it's just the, the soccer player and the ball. You also have um, player to ground um, and player to goalpost. Um, of those four types of concussion mechanisms, we're finding that player to player contact is actually going to be the most common cause. But that has its own um, kind of asterisk to it too. So within your player, uh, your player to player contacts or your head to player, um, we do see um, that there are about 40% of those are gonna go to hospitalization. Um, it do, does tend to be more boys than girls depending on like the level of play. And it's also, what's interesting is, um, uh, if you consider the rules that, you know, the, um, the, the safe play rules, if you have an, like, if we use the example, I'm guessing, um, from Christian and, you know, like blows to the head with an elbow are not sanctioned. Um, so anytime you kind of have those cheap shots or those illegal procedures, those are also considered player to player. And those illegal procedures are more likely to end in a um, in a concussion because of, you know, the jarring forces of the mechanisms. Um, but what is interesting and, and what we do worry a lot with our athletes, especially those that go up for headers, of course, is the ability to land appropriately. Um, what we don't want to see are the kind of athletes that go up in the air and then might get undercut. Um, so maybe the procedure was correct, 
maybe their technique was good, but because of that body to body contact or a slip or whatever, um, we find them, um, face down or slamming to the ground. And then we get that head to ground, um, mechanism. And what's interesting is on that scale, on the hierarchy of likelihood, head to ground is actually on the low end, but it has, um, but it's more likely to lead in a hospitalization. Um, so all of these factors have to be taken into consideration when we're looking at just mechanism. So Kristen, walk us through what happened after your concussion. I mean, were you transported? Did they just evaluate you on the side? What, what did you end? Did you get the MRI right away? Did you have a CT scan that day? Kind of, kind of the first and the second, first, your first concussion, then your fracture kind of walk us through what, what, what happened. So the, the first concussion, like I said, was uh, multiple blows to the head. So it wasn't very obvious. Like I didn't, obviously I got an elbow to the head, but it wasn't like I went down pretty hard and, um, you know, I was, I was okay. And, and, I, and I played the rest of the session where I got another elbow to the head. Um, after that, uh, I felt the impact of it and felt um, the symptoms. And then from there, uh, I didn't really think much of it because I didn't have very uh, heavy, heavy symptoms. So I didn't go to the doctor right away. Um, it wasn't until like four or five days later that those symptoms were lingering uh, that I went to the doctor, tried to figure out what's wrong, um, took time off training, you know, and then it wasn't honestly for the first one, it wasn't for a week or two before I actually was like, okay, let's get an MRI. There's something going on that I'm not really sure why I can't get over. Um, and that's when I was diagnosed with a concussion. Um, and it took me a while after that to, to get those symptoms away. Um, the second concussion was a pretty clear blow to the head it was actually my zygomatic arch bone that i broke um so around the eye around the temple area and i went down straight away um had rain to my ears uh, my trainer came on the field uh, immediately uh, saw there was a dent in my it, next to my eye so obviously he he said um, there's no way you can continue it's, it's very unsafe so from there we we went to the training room um, he just kept an eye on me and then we went to the doctors that next morning um, and, and was diagnosed with a concussion and then the, um, what we had to do to fix the, the zygomatic arch bone. Awesome. So let, let's get back to kind of evaluation, Nancy. So someone has a concussion. What, what, what is the protocol? What's the standard workup? Um, do you guys suggest CT scans routinely, MRIs routinely and talk us about, and talk to us a little bit about, um, your acute concussion evaluation. How do you evaluate these guys or girls or both? Yeah, um, these players. So what we do at Core Physical Therapy um, with our athletic trainers is we utilize the SCAT-5. Um, and the SCAT-5 uh, child, depending on the age of the individual. So if there is a, a contest, a game, practice, um, where a head injury is suspected, then we will use that um, assessment tool to help us make a clinical decision. Um, there are instances that I, I feel like I need to just to say from a PSA that if there is not a certified athletic trainer or another reliable healthcare provider on the field, um, then the next step for parents um, and for individuals is actually to go get assessed. Um, either at an urgent care or an um, emergency department, because unfortunately, athletic training services are not um, always available. So now that that's out of the way, that that public service announcement. 
Um, so we do that with our on-field assessments. We do use the SCAT-5, um, which is a standardized um, assessment that has been adopted by uh, several um, kind of major professional sport entities. Um, FIFA, of course, being um, one of the big ones, but also World Rugby and the Olympics as well. So within the SCAT-5, it gives us a snapshot of the individual, not just the mechanism um, or their symptoms that they might be reporting in that moment, but also other brain functions, such as uh, their cognitive ability, their memory from both before and after the hit, and certainly a balance assessment. So all, all of those factors um, have to be taken into consideration when making a decision as far as return to play or removal. From there, uh, we do um, recommend that those athletes with concussions and with suspected concussions um, do seek um, specialized therapy in in-clinic settings. So Cora Physical Therapy has a concussion management program where we have uh, an evaluation process that, that we teach and we use to ensure that all aspects of the individual and their brain functions are at a level where it's actually safe to return both to life and to play. Um, and those, those different activities, which again, you know, it does include um, balance, it does include um, vestibular, which is going to be um, kind of the dizziness aspect, you know, um, ocular motor, um, and cognitive, all of those do get addressed in clinic. Um, and then it's from there that a safe return to play protocol is established. And here in the state of Florida, where, you know, where I'm located, uh, we actually actually have for youth, for youth athletes, um, the state does have a form that we follow, but the protocols are going to be the same, um, regardless of whether or not this is a soccer athlete or a football athlete, um, or even just a work comp, right? Somebody who's, um, you know, who has a job that's very active. And the principles of those uh, return to play protocols ensure a stepwise progression into um, full return to play. So, you know, day one might just be um, kind of your light activity, aerobic activity that is, um, it could be uh, walking, could be biking, could be jogging, just something to get the blood going um, to see if we can uh, force a reproduction of those symptoms. So that is the importance of the stepwise progression is to, is to test the brain, right? To see if it's ready to go. Um, and it's going to go up from there. And depending on the sport, especially with our soccer athletes, um, if they can pass, if they can graduate light aerobic activity, um, you know, and their balance training is okay. And we do have some good, um, like eyes open, eyes closed, eyes um, working on unstable surfaces. Again, all that's clear. Then we just move to write moderate aerobic and non-contact drills. Right. So, so we can start sneaking in kind of these sports specific um, drills to ensure that not only the individual is ready, but they're also ready for the demands of the sport. Um, then we move to non-contact, but intense, complex movements. Um, so for um, for goalkeepers, you know, this is going to be like your footwork, your technical skills, um, punting and ball catching for your forwards. This is going to be um, running off the ball drills and shadowing play and finishing um, 
And then of course, um, you know, no, no contact. Full contact is going to be our final step. But what is important about this progression and um, what a lot of folks tend to, I'm not going to say forget, but aren't intentional with is it's okay to be, it's okay to go through this slow, right? It, it is, it is okay to take a step back. If we have an athlete who say is on day three of a five day progression and, and their, their symptoms are starting to return or they're just more drained from the activity than, than kind of reasonable for what they did, then we know that they're not ready. And it's okay to pull back that individual and to extend the length of that return to play protocol because it's going to be dependent on the individual. You know, the the five-day return to play is not a cookie-cutter program. We just know the basics of what they should be able to pass at each step of the process. And then, of course, if things don't get better, then we do encourage the referral. Okay, so so let's go back a little bit. So so uh, Christian's playing, and he comes over, or he gets knocked down. How are you going to assess him? Teach teach us how the on-field assessment process uh, takes place. You're you're covering the game. Christian goes down. He's laying yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he took a took an elbow to the head. Now what? Now what do we do? Uh, sure. So. The first step is always going to be um, determining um, player safety and personal safety, right? So if the individual is lying on the ground, we want to keep them on the ground. Um, Anytime that you have a blow to the head, whether it's player to player, ball to player, elbow to face, whatever the case is, we always have to worry about the neck as well. Um, So we don't want to move the individual, especially the ones who um, lie on the ground and stay on the ground. Um, we want, we need to ensure that the neck is also um, safe. So, so we get them on the field. Um, we we try to establish their um, their cognitive. Excuse me, not their cognitive. Um, we try to establish uh, responsiveness and and level of consciousness, right? Because if the individual is 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 on the ground unconscious, that's an automatic call um, for emergency response services. Um, but if they are responsive, how responsive are they? Um, can they, are they opening their eyes on command? If I ask, you know, Christian, right. Who is this, this athlete on the ground? What happened? Where are you? What hurts? If they're able to respond, that's good news for me, right? Then that means we're kind of out of those dangerous waters of a potential uh, life-threatening situation. And it just goes into injury management. Um, once we get them off the field, so, so we determine, right, that the neck is okay. Um, they, they do have a level of consciousness that is appropriate. Um, we do need to remove them from the field, uh, because it's just safer to conduct a concussion screening when, you know, you, you don't have this athlete in yourself in the middle of this arena. Um, we pull them off to the sideline. We try to get them in as, controlled of an environment as we can. You know, Christian mentioned that his athletic trainer took him into a room in the stadium. That's ideal Um, when you've got crowds and when you've got friends and when you've got parents, you know, kind of crowding that sideline, trying to, with well intentions, figure out what's going on. That can be distractive and anxiety causing to that individual. And 
And that does tend to affect their scores because they can't focus on you and the questions you're asking. Instead, they're also worried about the environment around them. So we, to the best of our ability, we do try to control for that. Um, but principally, you know, to, to get to kind of the absolute nuts of your question, um, we are going to look at eye tracking um, and we can do that a couple of ways um, through Pearl, which in short is just somebody like sticking a light in your eye and moving things around. Um, we do do a cranial nerve assessment, you know, of the of the primary nerves that connect your brain to the rest of your body we need to absolutely be sure um, that those are all intact and functioning and we don't have an issue there. Um, then of course we move into that SCAT-5, which then gives us that global analysis of how they are from a symptom perspective, how they're doing cognitive, uh, cognitively, again, memory um, and balance. And, and that, that whole picture um, is, what, is, is what an assessment is. So, so Christian's laying on the, the ground. Yeah. Um, I guess everyone looks at it a little bit differently. Um, we would probably look at the first thing is an airway. We would make sure he was breathing, yeah. A, airway, B, breathing. Um, and so, so how do you determine when so, – so Christian's laying there. When do you determine when you're going to transport Christian? I mean, or, or – I mean, how, what, what is your thought process in, in stepwise? Uh, when are you going to put him on a stretcher? When are you going to sure. sit him up? Um, how do you assess Christian to make sure a cervical spine's okay if, if he's conscious or unconscious? And, 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 and maybe the analogy would be in a football injury where you would cut the face mask off and you really wouldn't want to do anything uh, until you were sure you were stabilizing. So how are you going to assess his breathing and his airway b before we get to the stadium and all the people and things. Sure. Um, so as I stated, um, you know, at the top of the assessment question, um, anytime there's a loss of consciousness, uh, certainly for us with our youth athletes, that is an automatic call to 911. And it doesn't matter if it was for a brief moment all the way up to too many <laughs> brief moments. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a call for us. Assuming they are conscious, um, then we do have to determine um, whether or not there is a cervical spine injury, just like you said. So for me personally, um, I get real close and tight into my athletes um, and I will actually put my hand um, on the individual to ensure that we don't have kind of a knee jerk. I got to get up and get out of this situation reaction because for some kids it is embarrassing and the last thing they want to do is you know is, is be seen right on the ground and um in that kind of position so so i will actually gently rest my hand um on that individual if the individual is on their back um if if they're on their back then that means that i'm actually um um, I position myself like literally at the top of their head so that I can take my hands and cut both spine and head. And we call that holding C-spine. So that allows me to be in control both of the individual, be close enough to talk to them and to be able to assess, um, to assess whether they're breathing. So we can look at chest fall. Um, I can get my cheek down real close, right, to their mouth to like feel the actual breaths coming in. And it also allows me to palpate um, or to scan 
on the cervical spine with my fingers for any deformities um, or any irrational pain with that individual. And then that goes into um, if they're conscious and there's no pain in their neck, then we start asking that individual to um, just not move, right? But wiggle hands and feet, right? Do they have that full neurological um, control of their limbs? So um, if we are not worried about a cervical spine injury, then we can talk about transporting off the field or a self-transport off the field. If there is any doubt that there could be a cervical spine injury, meaning we have a bony block on the neck, the neck is found at an angle that it just should not be found, um, or we have focal intense um, pain, then, then nobody moves. We bring the board on the field and, and that is how the individual is trans is transferred off. Um, but assuming that's okay. And we move to progress them off the field. Um, then it is a matter of, um, uh, you know, we have them sit, we have them kneel, we have them stand, um, depending on maybe how wobbly that individual it is, um, I might um, like put their arm right around me and just kind of kind of act as a crutch to ensure that they can get off the field safely. Um, anytime that you have an athlete, um, so if we're looking at this individual, we do we start our assessment on the eyes and their cranial nerves. Um, if we have dilated or blown pupils, so that they're their pupils are not responding or you have one that's really small and one that's really large, that's also an, uh, an automatic send. Um, if you notice that they begin to have trouble breathing, like that starts to decline, that's an automatic send. The other automatic send is if you are speaking to this individual and they are answering your questions, they're aware of where you are, um, you know, they, they have a general sense of their body and what's going on, but then it's like a light switched and suddenly they are incoherent, maybe um, talking nonsense um, or they get uh, uh, like really dizzy, shaky, like need to sit down, lie down. That means there's like an actual um, drop in function. And, and, and we're worried not only about a concussion at that point, but also a bleed on the brain. Um, that is an automatic send. Great. So, so let's move on just a little bit. So, um, you, you, the, the SCAD five, I think everybody would, would agree is a very good standard. Um, the child SCAD five and the SCAD five, the SCAD four was probably not as good. Um, Christian, give me, give me a little idea of, of what happens in soccer practice. How many times you head the ball? Do you think heading the ball is a problem? Do you think repetitive heading the ball is a problem? Um, any team members ever have issues with repetitive headers? So, so kind of give me a practice and tell me what happens. How often do you guys head the ball? How often do you practice heading the ball? Um, at the youth level, um, you know, growing up, playing in high school and college, um, we head the ball pretty often. We work on uh, heading and training. Defenders, obviously, uh, try to work on heading when they clear the ball off of crosses, um, when the ball is off of goal kicks. Um, there's multiple situations where we would head the ball. In, in practice, um, I wouldn't say we just over and over repetitively head the ball. Um, we work on our technique with heading. Um, but then in the game situation and a practice situation where we're playing and we're going through drills and, and all of that, um, we head the ball 
uh, only when kind of necessary and only when the situation seems fit. So um, it depends on your position. Center backs will probably head the ball um, in a typical game. I don't know, maybe 20, 30 times, um, you know, a, a forward probably heads the ball uh, 10, 15 times, something like that. Um, and we work on heading techniques when we're younger. Um, but as we get older, once we, once we perfect the technique, it, it's not like we, we work on it all the time. Um, but we definitely, you know, I was a striker, so I played forward and after practice, I would get, uh, my, my outside players to, to whip balls in and cross balls to me so I can then head it, um, and work on my heading into the goal. And sometimes we do that, you know, 20, 30, 40 reps back to back. Um, so there's definitely like repetitive heading, but I've never, never found it a problem um, as far as me and having symptoms after repetitive heading in a training session. And, and Nancy, do you think it's an issue for, for young adolescent women, um, repetitive head, hitting the ball? Um, so what we're finding in the research is technique, um, age of the individual, and of course proper equipment and by for soccer the only piece of equipment is the soccer ball um, are really going to be the primary indicators of safe heading um, for for young girls in general what we're concerned with of course is um, kind of their uh, the the developmental arc um, between um, youth boys and youth girls, um, for for the for the girls, it's it's a little bit it's not delayed, but it does take a little bit more to get there. So what we're worried about um, is is their execution um, and landing mechanics from going up um, for purposeful heading. Do you think decreasing the the um, pressure, as in the Purdue study, Purdue looked at. Uh, so I think there's a real issue with repetitive hitting the ball. And if you look at the yeah. studies uh, in adolescence, there's a direct correlation in decreased standardized testing versus the number of head balls in an adolescent female. And that's been shown over and over again. Mm -hmm. So uh, clearly the kids that head the ball more frequently do worse on standardized testing. And, and again, we're talking about 12 year olds, 14 year olds, et cetera. Do you think uh, decreasing the change in the ball in any way, decreasing the pressure in the ball, et cetera, uh, would make a difference or should we just not have uh, adolescent athletes at a certain age work on their technique or, or, or how, how, how do we come to grips with this? Sure. So I would say from the, from the equipment perspective, the balls um, specifically, um, you know, the, the recommendation, of course, is to stick to the manufacturer guidelines. Um, and this is going to be the same for, um, you know, football equipment and anything else like that. Anytime that you, you uh, go against manufacturer uh, standards, then you do open yourself up for liability. Um, when it comes to age and heading the ball, um, you know, I, it's, it is a it is a topic of discussion that, in my opinion, uh, it comes around right every couple of years. Do we do we increase the age? Do we drop it altogether at a certain point? Um, and honestly, I really think it comes down to good 
intentional education, both on the coach's part and on the athlete's part. The way that it stands, and Christian, please, um, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the way that it stands is that there's there's really no standardized practice for the teaching of heading the ball like we see in other sports like um, uh, football, right? Uh, the um, like uh, going head-to-head contacts in football, um, the baseball pitch, right? Like what the what the ideal or the recommended progression is. Um, instead, a lot of that is really based on the prerogative of the coach or the prerogative of the club or the entity that is overseeing those athletes. So um, as with any injury, good mechanics, um, age where the athlete has to be, um, they need good core strength, they need good neck strength, um, and they need good um, uh, like visual tracking in order to approach a header in a safe manner. I think one one way that our youth coaches, um, especially those who are uh, 12 and under where heading is restricted, um, is to practice heading, um, but it has to be with with a ball that's not a soccer ball because those those weighted balls do come with a risk. Um, instead, they can use those like rubber soccer balls. Um, you know, that we're also familiar with from our gym classes or just like a beach ball, just to just to get down to the building blocks, right, of how to approach a header safely. Um, so it is a discussion that I, I am happy to have and to continue. Um, but I really think that it it it, it takes everybody. Right. So it, it takes the healthcare professionals to identify at risk individuals. It takes coaches being intentional when they develop their practice, um, their practice schedules and, you know, um, everything else that goes on with that. And of course, it's up to the athletes as well um, to not take unnecessary risks when they are at the age 13 and older, um, where they are allowed unrestricted to go up for headers. So it's it's a combination. So Christian, give us give us kind of your, your thoughts on to, to improve foot skills, uh, balance, uh, strength, improve your technique in terms of heading the ball. Or is it just a it's just a repetitive practice thing, or is it a technique thing? What how do you get better at it, and 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 what are the mechanisms that we should teach our our kids, our youth, uh, in terms of um, appropriate technique, uh, how to protect themselves going up, et cetera. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, discussion because uh, so many players these days don't know how to properly head the ball. Um, I coach a a high school level girls team, so a high school age girls team. Um, And one of our girls this year got a concussion um, simply from heading the ball off off of a punt from the goalkeeper. And the main reason why she got a concussion is because one, she was a little bit scared of the ball and two, she hit it on the top of her head, which is improper technique. So she just had the the wrong technique and um, it resulted in a concussion. So it's hugely important at a young age or at a appropriate age to teach the proper techniques of heading. Um, And I remember my coaches did a very good job of that um, when I was young, but not all coaches do. Um, They don't understand uh, how often players should be heading the ball, what age, 
um, and, and how to teach the proper technique um, from start to finish. Um, I actually, um, in my training, I, I do every year, I do a, a heading clinic for those um, kids that are going from um, the size four ball to the size five, which is that 13 year old um, uh, age where they're allowed to head the ball, um, but nobody's ever really taught them. So with the restrictions now with soccer that you're not allowed to head the ball, most people and coaches will say, oh, we're not allowed to head the ball. We're not even going to practice it. Well, uh, at some point we have to practice it before we go in the game and now we're able to head the ball. <laughs> like it doesn't just work and people don't just watch soccer and be like, oh, I know how to do that now. So um, I actually have like um, a number of uh, like a progression when we go for heading um, and how to teach the kids. So which part of the head to use? Um, I start with them on the, on their knees, on the ground, um, simply just like on their knees, I toss the ball in the air and they focus on getting their correct contact. Um, they don't do anything other than just like, uh, use their neck to go from, from back to forward. Um, and then from there we'll go, um, to go through the ball a little bit more. And then from there we'll, we'll go, um, and do a couple other progressions before we even like hit the ground where we're standing up and, and we're heading the ball. Um, so it's hugely important. And I think that if there's, if there can become like a, a structure and a plan that all coaches can use, I think that would be huge because a lot, of, a lot of coaches just, um, they don't know the protocols and they also don't know how to teach, um, from point A to point B. I think that's really helpful. So, so what do you think is an appropriate age? I mean, is 13 an appropriate age? Um, you know, in, in Europe, as you know, they really discovered discourage it in the younger ages. What what's an appropriate age to say, all right, coaches, let's rock and roll and and Dales? Uh that's tough because um at a very young age, the ball is still bouncing to their head height. So we'll we're seeing kids that are nine, ten years old that the ball's coming to their head. And because they know the rule is we're not allowed to use our head, it's going to be a foul and a free kick to the other team. They shy away from their head. They don't use it. They try to use another part of their body and they, you know, are awkward with it. So instead, like, uh, there's definitely a pro a, an appropriate age. I don't know what it would be because um, I'm not a doctor and don't know how brains work and how they develop. But there's definitely going to be an age where their their brains are, are more well developed so that they can do it. But I think it, it still comes down to they need to learn at an earlier age. If the ball comes to their head, how can they protect themselves um, by having proper technique? And I think that's interesting Um you know, what Nancy was saying about um, using something other than a soccer ball. Um, that's something that I've never even thought about. Um, and that's with me knowing what concussions I've been through and uh, knowing that I want to properly teach these kids how to head the ball. And I've never even thought about using a beach ball or a soft, uh, like a dodge ball or something like that. Um, and that's something that I'm probably going to implement with my younger athletes because uh, they can use a softer ball and still learn the technique without really like, uh, harming themselves or even like putting themselves in harm's way um so i don't know if there's a necessarily like a certain age um but learning te teaching these kids as quickly as we can or as early as we can while doing it safely i think will help um protect them once they do get of the proper age that um is determined that's off awesome and i think she's 100 percent right i think if we can use some alternative source and the age is actually 13 um girls mature a little bit quicker than boys 
So the the age, but but they also have softer uh, skulls or calvarium. So age is actually about thirteen. Um, so so Nance, give us the horizon. What's what's in the future? How are we going to uh, prevent head injuries? And, and and what do we forget to talk about that we should have talked about? Um. Yeah, I feel like we could sit here all night uh, and certainly. <laughs> you can. God damn so, um, I, I mean, I, I'm in complete agreement uh, um, with, uh, with Christian that there, and, and this, this is me talking, you know, as, as an athletic trainer of more than a decade who has sat on all kinds of ball fields and courts and, and practice arenas, um, where it, a lot of feel like we need to educate our coaches more, um, or, or we need to provide resources for them that are attainable. Um, and, um, uh, what am I thinking? Attainable and um, practical. You know, uh, the smart answer to your question is, well, we need more research and we have, you know, we have to do these longitudinal studies and figure out and watch these kids progress over time. And then like, you know, get our honest to God markers and then be able to make a, um, a generalized, but reliable, you know, uh, decision based off significant data, et cetera. But th the truth comes down to it is, uh, you know, you know, the research can say or can make these recommendations, but if it's harder for the, the people on the ground, the individuals on this ball field to implement or to be able to say, yeah, that sounds great, but I, um, you know, I don't have those resources available to me. How do you know, like, how do we, how do we standardize that practice in our coaches, but how do we get the buy-in? Um, from our coaches as well. To, it's not an indictment on the coach to say, you're a bad coach, Christian, because you never thought of a beach ball before. How dare you? Um, you know, but it's, it's to let them know that there are um, members of their community, their healthcare community. We're not trying to keep the kids out of play. We're trying to ensure safe play. Um, so to have those open discussions and to include them um, you know, when we do start making these laws or if there is a soccer club or an organization that's going to look at their protocols then the coaches need to be a part of that equation as well. Um, so it's, it's really more of a, uh, like a social construct at that point for best practices. That's awesome. So Christian, final thoughts. What, what, what do we need to, what do we need to tell our physical therapists and our doctors out there, um, about concussions that, that we didn't really cover? What, what do we miss? Um, I don't know if there's anything that we, we missed. I mean, we, there's, a, there's a lot about research and, um, there, there's a lot nowadays about what the, what the science says about heading the ball with soccer and, and discussions about that. I think, um, the bottom line is like, we do need to educate our coaches better. And I think having a universal, um, program or resource that you can give, every single coach to do at that age group where they are allowed to head the ball currently, I think is like the key. I mean, I think that's something that uh, should be like across the board, U S soccer. This is um, we have one way of teaching it or not necessarily one way, but here's a program that is everybody can, 
can use at that age. They should do it first, like practice of the year or first week of the year when they're technically allowed to head the ball, or we can do it earlier. Um, I think having video resources and then going to the clubs and saying, Hey, this is what we think you should dictate. And this is uh, what we think you should implement into your club. Then the coaches are forced to do it. You know, we have the club that I coach at as well. Um, we have, uh, I don't know, uh, for 50, 60 teams, um, meaning that we have 20 or 30 coaches across the board coaching uh, four or 500 players. And it, I think it takes the clubs um, around the country to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to buy into this and we're going to do it. And the coaches will then follow. If the coaches lack the responsibility to actually do it, that's on them. Um, but at least from the, uh, starting with the club, then you can, um, trickle it down to the coaches, which then, uh, protects the players as a whole. Um, it doesn't just come from one coach. You know, I, I could implement the proper practices. Great, but that's 20, 30 kids, you know? Um, so I, I think that's the, that's the biggest key. And I mean, uh, that just sparks ideas for me to, to figure out a way that I can be a resource to those coaches in my community and the clubs in my community to say, hey, this is important and um, we, should, we should make a resource and have video and have everything provided for these coaches so there's really no excuse to protect the players. So you'd be more in favor of standardized, okay, at this age you do this, this is the number of head, like, like pitch count, this is the number yeah. of headers, this would be the number of, of uh, head balls in a week, this would be the number of head balls in a month. And, and maybe make it, make it more age appropriate? I wouldn't say necessarily standardizing. I mean, I think that would be helpful to have us like know, okay, this is what science has said, um, or not science, but medically um, speaking has said, this is what's appropriate, you know, with the research. And I think the biggest thing is providing the, the resource of how do, how do soccer coaches then implement that, implement that resource or that research. Um, because you could say, okay, yeah, they only need 20 head ball, he like headers a week. Uh, but are, what are we, what are we doing? Like kicking the head the ball at them? Are we tossing it to them lightly? Are we using a beach ball? Like, what are we doing? Um, and I think coaches, sometimes they, they lack the creativity to be like, oh, we're going to do this safely and thinking about the players. Like, I think having a resource where it says like, uh, at 12 years old, we need to do this practice um, with these different exercises until they feel comfortable. And you can decide to do it once a month, once every other month, once a week, whatever. I think that's like practical resources, what we need. Awesome. You guys, thank you very much. I think this was excellent. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, it's an ongoing topic. I mean, there's a lot of research. We are really trying to figure out, um, how sensitive the brain is and, and how much at risk these kids are. And I think soccer, even though people say, you know, we look at football and lacrosse and hockey uh, as, as contact sports and we, we study concussions, I think soccer, certainly in my practice, is, is a real risk in terms of um, head contact, minimal brain trauma, et cetera. So I think, it, I think it's going to become more pertinent, and I think as soccer becomes more and more popular, football becomes more and more popular, we're going to, we're going to tackle this issue and over and over again. So I thank you guys for your time, and uh, you guys are excellent. Thank you. I, I have a question, it. like I always have a question. So I go out there on Google, and I uh, type in uh, uh, Christian's uh, name, Isley. See how it got that way? Yep. And, uh, of course, Google has everything, and now I'm on your stat card, right? How does somebody <laughs> – from Orlando find themselves in 
Kimmy Finland? Uh, that's a great question. If if those <laughs> those who don't know, Kemi Finland is in the uh, the Arctic Circle, um, it so it's just pretty much as far north as you can go. And um, honestly, like it's just like anything else in life, you have connections, you have you have people that know other people, and you end up you think you're going one place, and then you end up in another place. Um, and it's all for a reason, which is the coolest part. It is north. I was looking at uh, acquiring a business up there. If you could believe that, that's how I know the place. Wow, that's, that's <laughs> that is a small world, isn't it? When I said I'm looking out there, I'm going, ah, I get it. Oh my gosh! Ah. Anyway, how does somebody get a hold of you? Uh, let's say I'm in Orlando. I want to get a hold of you. What's uh, talk to us a little bit about what that looks like, there, Christian? Yeah, so uh, I started my own uh, soccer training company called F3 Soccer Training, um, and it's basically. Uh, supplemental training to the, to the club system and the um, the players here in Orlando. Uh, we offer training at all different ages and levels. Um, we don't want to. We want to be a very inclusive program, so it's not just for the elite performance athlete, but it's also for the six, seven, eight, nine year olds that uh, want to learn and get better at the sport. Um, so that's that's my business right now. Uh, it's been a year. It's been a great year, um, and and I grew up in the Orlando area. Spent. Uh, my whole my whole life here other than when I was in Kemi, Finland. Um, and, you know, I just want to give back to that community and, and help as much as I can. Uh, do you connect with your dad quite frequently? Because apparently he's a legend too in the world of soccer. Yeah, he, um, you know, he spent 36 years coaching here in Orlando. Um, yeah. he, he recently retired two years ago from coaching at Lake Murray High School where I'm at now. And, um, and, and I took over uh, two years ago from him. So he's he's gotten 36 years, and I don't know how long I'm going to go, but surely not 36. <laughs> Nancy, how do people get a hold of you? Sure. Um, so my uh, my email through Cora is going to be my first initial last name. So that's nburns at corahealth.com. And of course, you're always welcome to go to corephysicaltherapy.com. Check us out. There you go, corephysicaltherapy.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go out there. You'll get all the answers. All right, you guys are, again, I mean, knocking it out of the park. Can I say knocking it out of the park in a uh, soccer? Can I? Can I? Kicking it Hold in the gold. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, we're going to come back with a, another wonderful panel shortly.